Section 14 of The Waning of the Middle Ages, a study of the forms of life, thought, and art in France and the Netherlands in the 14th and 15th centuries. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Joyce Mack. The Waning of the Middle Ages by Johann Heisinger. Translated by Frederick Jan Hopman. Religious Thought Crystallizing into Images. Part 1. Towards the end of the Middle Ages, two factors dominate religious life. The extreme saturation of the religious atmosphere and a marked tendency of thought to embody itself in images. Individual and social life, in all their manifestations, are imbued with the conceptions of faith. There is not an object, nor an action, however trivial, that is not constantly correlated with Christ or salvation. All thinking tends to religious interpretation of individual things. There is an enormous unfolding of religion in daily life. This spiritual wakefulness, however, results in a dangerous state of tension, for the presupposed transcendental feelings are sometimes dormant, and whenever this is the case, all that is meant to stimulate spiritual consciousness is reduced to appalling commonplace profanity, to a startling worldliness in otherworldly guise. Only saints are capable of an attitude of mind in which those transcendental faculties are never in abeyance. The spirit of the Middle Ages, still plastic and naive, longs to give concrete shape to every conception. Every thought seeks expression in an image, but in this image it solidifies and becomes rigid. By this tendency to embodiment in visible forms, all holy concepts are constantly exposed to the danger of hardening into mere externalism. For in assuming a definite figurative shape, thought loses its ethereal and vague qualities, and pious feeling is apt to resolve itself in the image. Even in the case of a sublime mystic like Henry Suzo, the craving for hallowing every action of daily life verges in our eyes on the ridiculous. He is sublime when, following the usages of profane love, he celebrates New Year's Day and May Day by offering a wreath and a song to his betrothed, eternal wisdom. Or when out of reverence for the Holy Virgin, he renders homage to all womankind and walks in the mud to let a beggar woman pass. But what are we to think of what follows? At table, Suzo eats three quarters of an apple in the name of the Trinity, and the remaining quarter in commemoration of the love with which the Heavenly Mother gave her tender child Jesus an apple to eat. And for this reason, he eats the last quarter with a pairing, as little boys do not peel their apples. After Christmas, he does not eat it, for then the infant Jesus was too young to eat apples. He drinks in five droughts because of the five wounds of the Lord, but as blood and water flowed from the side of Christ, he takes his last drought twice. That is indeed pushing the sanctification of life to extremes. In so far as it concerns individual piety, this tendency to apply religious conceptions to all things and at all times is a deep source of saintly life. As a cultural phenomenon, the same tendency harbors grave dangers. Religion penetrating all relations in life means a constant blending of the spheres of holy and of profane thought. Holy things will become too common to be deeply felt. The endless growth of observances, 
images, religious interpretations, signifies an augmentation in quantity at which serious divines grew alarmed, as they feared the quality would deteriorate proportionately. The warning with which we find in all reformist writings of the time of the schism and of the councils is, the church's being overloaded. Pierre Delis, in condemning the novelties which were incessantly introduced into the liturgy and the sphere of belief, is less concerned about the piety of their character than about the steady increase itself. The signs of the ever-ready divine grace multiplied endlessly. A host of special benedictions sprang up side by side with the sacraments. In addition to relics, we find amulets. The bizarre gallery of saints became ever more numerous and variegated. However emphatically divines insisted upon the difference between sacraments and sacramentalia, the people would still confound them. Gerson talks how he met a man at Auxerre, who maintained that all fools' days was as sacred as the day of the Virgin's conception. Nicholas de Clamange wrote a treatise, De Novis Festivitatibus, non instituendis, in which he denounced the apocryphal nature of some among these new institutions. Pierre Dali in De Reformazione deplores the ever-increasing number of churches, of festivals, of saints, of holy days. He protests against the multitude of images and paintings, the prolixity of the service, against the introduction of new hymns and prayers, against the augmentation of vigils and fasts. In short, what alarms him is the evil of superfluity. There are too many religious orders, says Dali, and this leads to a diversity of usages, to exclusiveness and rivalry, to pride and vanity. In particular, he desired to impose restrictions on the mendicant orders, whose social utility he questions. They live to the detriment of the innates of leper houses and hospitals, and other really poor and wretched people, who are truly entitled to beg. Let the sellers of these indulgences be banished from the church, which they soil with their lies and make ridiculous. Convents are built on all sides, but sufficient funds are lacking. Where is this to lead? Pierre Delis does not question the holy and pious character of all these practices in themselves. He only deplores their endless multiplication. He sees the church weighed down under the load of particulars. Religious customs tend to multiply in an almost mechanical way. A special office was instituted for every detail of the worship of the Virgin Mary. There were particular masses, afterwards abolished by the church, in honor of the piety of Mary, of her seven sorrows, of all her festivals taken collectively, of her sisters, the two other Marys, of the Archangel Gabriel, of all the saints of our Lord's genealogy. A curious example of this spontaneous accretion of religious usage is found in the weekly observance of Innocence Day. The 28th of December, the day of the massacre at Bethlehem, was taken to be ill-omened. This belief was the origin of a custom, widely spread during the 15th century, of considering as a black-letter day all the year through the day of the week on which the preceding Innocence Day fell. Consequently, there was one day in every week on which people abstained from setting out upon a journey and beginning a new task, and this day was called Innocence Day, like the festival itself. Louis XI observed this usage scrupulously. The coronation of Edward IV of England was repeated, as it had taken place on a Sunday, because the 28th of December of the previous year had been a Sunday too. René de Lorraine had to give up his plan of fighting a battle on the 17th of October, 1476, as his lansquenets refused to encounter the enemy, 
on Innocence Day. This belief, of which we find some traces appearing in England as late as the 18th century, called forth the treaties from Gerson against superstition in general. His penetrating mind had realized some of the danger with which these excreances of the creed menaced the purity of religious thought. He was aware of their psychological basis. According to him, these beliefs preceded ex sola hominum fantasione e melancholia imaginazione. It is the disorder of the imagination caused by some lesion of the brain, which in its turn is due to diabolic illusions. The church was constantly on her guard, lest dogmatic truth should be confounded with this mass of facile beliefs, and lest the exuberance of popular fancy should degrade God. But was she able to stand against the strong need of giving a concrete form to all the emotions accompanying religious thought? It was an irresistible tendency to reduce the infinite to the finite, to disintegrate all mystery. The highest mysteries of the creed became covered with a crust of superficial piety. Even the profound faith in the Eucharist expands into childish beliefs. For instance, that one cannot go blind or have a stroke or apoplexy on a day of which one has heard Mass, or that one does not grow older during the time spent in attending Mass. While herself offering so much food to the popular imagination, the Church could not claim to keep that imagination within the limits of a healthy and vigorous piety. In this respect, the case of Gerson is characteristic. He composed the treatise Contra Vanum Curiositatem, by which he means the spirit of research which desires to scrutinize the secrets of nature. But whilst protesting against it, he himself becomes guilty of a curiosity which to us seems out of place and deplorable. Gerson was the great promoter of the adoration of St. Joseph. His veneration for this saint makes him desirous of learning all that concerns him. He writes out all particulars of the married life of Joseph. His continence, his age, the way in which he learned of the virgin's pregnancy. He is indignant at the caricature of a drudging and ridiculous Joseph, which the arts were inclined to make of him. In another passage, Gerson indulges in a speculation on the bodily constitution of St. John the Baptist. Semen iguiter materiale ex qua corpus companinandum erat, nec durum nimis nec rursis fluidum abundantius fuit. Whether the virgin had taken an active part in the supernatural conception, or again, whether the body of Christ would have decomposed, if it had not been for the resurrection, were what the popular preacher Oliver Maillard called beautiful theological questions to discuss before his auditors. The mixture of theological and embryological speculation to which the controversy about the immaculate conception of the virgin gave rise shocked the minds of that period so little that grave divines did not scruple to treat the subject from the pulpit. This familiarity with sacred things is, on the one hand, a sign of deep and ingenuous faith. On the other, it entails irreverence whenever mental contact with the infinite fails. Curiosity, ingenious though it may be, leads to profanation. In the 15th century, people used to keep statuettes of the Virgin, of which the body opened and showed the trinity within. The inventory of the treasure of the Dukes of Burgundy makes mention of one made of gold inlaid with gems. Gerson saw one in the Carmelite monastery of Paris. He blames the brethren for it, not, however, because such a coarse picture of the miracle shocked him as irreverent, but because of the heresy of presenting the trinity as the fruit of Mary. All life was saturated with religion to such an extent that the people were in constant danger of losing sight of the distinction 
between things spiritual and things temporal. If, on the one hand, all details of ordinary life may be raised to a sacred level, on the other hand, all that is holy sinks to the commonplace by the fact of being blended with everyday life. In the Middle Ages, the demarcation of the sphere of religious thought and that of worldly concerns was nearly obliterated. It occasionally happened that indulgences figured among the prizes of a lottery. When a prince was making a solemn entry, the altars at the corners of the streets, loaded with the precious reliquaries of the town and served by prelates, might be seen alternating with dumb shows of pagan goddesses or comic allegories. Nothing is more characteristic in this respect than the fact that there are hardly any difference between the musical character of profane and sacred melodies. Till late in the 16th century, profane melodies might be used indiscriminately for sacred use and sacred for profane. It is notorious that Guillaume du Fay and others composed masses to the theme of love songs, such as Tant je me déduis, sur la face aille pale, l'homme armé. There was a constant interchange of religious and profane terms. No one felt offended by hearing the day of judgment compared to a settling of accounts, as in the verses formerly written over the door of the audit office at Lille. L'or ouvrira au son de brisine sa générale et grand chambre des comptes. A tournament, on the other hand, is called les armes grandissisme pardon, the great indulgence conferred by arms, as if it were a pilgrimage. By a chance coincidence, the words mysterium and ministerium were blended in French into the form mystère, and this homonymy must have helped efface the true sense of the word mystery in everyday parlance, because even the most commonplace things might be called mystère. While religious symbolism represented the realities of nature in history as symbols or emblems of salvation, on the other hand, religious metaphors were borrowed to express profane sentiments. People in the Middle Ages, standing in awe of royalty, do not shrink from using the language of adoration in praising princes. In the lawsuit about the murder of Louis of Orleans, the counsel for the defense makes the shade of the duke say to his son, Look at my wounds and observe that five of them are particularly cruel and mortal. The bishop of Chalon, Jean Germain, in his Liber de Virtutibus, Philippi Duis Burgundiae, in his turn does not scruple to compare the victim of Montereau to the lamb. The Emperor Frederick III, when sending his son Maximilian to the Low Countries to marry Mary of Burgundy, is compared by Molinet to God the Father. The same author makes the people of Brussels say, when they wept with tenderness on seeing the Emperor entering the town with Maximilian and Philippe Le Beau, Behold the image of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. He offers a wreath of flowers to Mary of Burgundy, a worthy image of Our Lady, s'écluse la virginité. Non point que je veux défier les princes, Molinette adds. Although we may consider such formulae of adultation empty phrases, they show nonetheless the depreciation of sacred imagery resulting from its hackneyed use. We can hardly blame a court poet when Gerson himself ascribes to the royal auditors of his sermons guardian angels of a higher rank in the celestial hierarchy than those of other men. The stuff of familiarity to irreverence is taken when religious terms are applied to erotic relations. The subject has been dealt with above. 
The author of the Quinze Joies de Mariage chose his title to accord with the joys of the Virgin. The defender of the Roman de la Rose used sacred terms to designate the partis corpus in homestas e peccata immunada ate turpia. No instance of this dangerous association of religious with amatory sentiments could be more striking than the Madonna ascribed to Fouquet, making part of a diptych which was formerly preserved at Milan and is now partly at Antwerp and partly at Berlin. Antwerp possessing the Madonna, and Berlin the panel representing the donor, Etienne Chevalier, the king's treasurer, together with St. Stephen. In the 17th century, Denis Godefroy noted down a tradition, then already old, according to which the Madonna had the features of Agnes Sorel, the royal mistress, for whom Chevalier felt a passion that he did not trouble to conceal. However this may be, the Madonna is, in fact, represented here according to the canons of contemporary fashion. There is the bulging shaven forehead, the rounded breasts, placed high and wide apart, the high and slender waist, the bizarre inscrutable expression of the Madonna's face, the red and blue cherubim surrounding her, all contribute to giving this painting an air of decadent impiety in spite of the stalwart figure of the donor. Godefroy observed on the large frame of blue velvet ease done in pearls linked by love knots of gold and silver thread. There is a flavor of blasphemous boldness about the whole, unsurpassed by any artist of the Renaissance. The irreverence of daily religious practice was almost unbounded. Choristers, when chanting mass, did not scruple to sing the words of the profane songs that had served as a theme for the composition, Baisez-moi, Rougenay. A startling piece of impudence is recorded of the father of the Frisian humanist Rodolphe Agricola, who received the news that his concubine had given birth to a son on the very day when he was elected abbot. Today I have twice become a father. God's blessing on it, said he. At the end of the 14th century, people took the increasing irreverence to be an evil of recent date, which indeed is a common phenomenon at all times. Deschamps deplores it in the following lines. En souloir estre ou temps passé, en église béniment, à genoux en humilité, délai l'auteur moule closement, tout nu le chef pieusement, mais aujourd'hui, si comme beste, on vient à l'auteur bien souvent, chaperon et chapelle en test. Footnote. In bygone times, people used to be gentle in church, on their knees in humility close beside the altar with meekly uncovered head. But at present, like beasts, they too often come to the altar with hood and hat on their heads. End footnote. On festal days, says Nicolas de Clemange, few people go to mass. They do not stay till the end, and are content with touching the holy water, bowing before Our Lady, or kissing the image of some saint. If they wait for the elevation of the host, they pride themselves upon it as if they had conferred a benefit on Christ. At matins and vespers, the priest and his assistant are the only ones present. The squire of the village makes the priest wait to begin mass till he and his wife have risen and dressed. The most sacred festivals, even Christmas night, says Gerson, are passed in debauchery, playing at cards, swearing, and blaspheming. When the people are admonished, they plead the example of the nobility and the clergy who behave in like manner with impunity. Vigils likewise, says Clemange, are kept with lascivious songs and dances, even in church. Priests set the example by dicing as they watch. 
It may be said that moralists paint things in two dark colors, but in the accounts of Strasbourg, we find a yearly gift of 1,100 liters of wine granted by the council to those who watched in prayer in church during the night of St. Adolphus. Dennis the Carthusian wrote a treatise, De Modo Agenti Processionis, at the request of an alderman, who asked him how one might remedy the dissoluteness and debauchery to which the annual procession, in which a greatly venerated relic was born, gave rise. How are we to put a stop to this? asked the alderman. You may be sure that the town council will not easily be persuaded to abolish it, for the procession brings large profits to the town, because of all the people who have to be fed and lodged. Besides, custom will have it so. Alas, yes, sighs Dennis. He knows too well how processions were disgraced by ribaldry, mockery, and drinking. A most vivid picture of this evil is found in Castellanian's description of the degradation into which the procession of the citizens of Ghent, with the shrine of St. Liavin, to how them had fallen. Formerly, he says, the notabilities were in the habit of carrying the holy body with great and deep solemnity and reverence. At present, there is only a mob of roughs and boys of bad character. They carry it singing and yelling with hundred thousand jibes and are all drunk. They are armed and commit many offenses where they pass, as if they were let loose and unchained. That day everything appears to be given up to them under the pretext of the body they carry. We have already mentioned how much disturbance was caused during church services by people vying with each other in politeness. The usage of making a trysting place of the church by young men and young women was so universal that only moralists were scandalized by it. The virtuous Christine de Pisan makes a lover say in all simplicity, Ce souvent ve ou c'est tout pour voir la belle, fraîche comme grosse nouvelle. Footnote. If I often go to church, it is all for seeing the fair one, fresh as a new-blown rose. End of footnote. The church suffered more serious profanation than the little love services of a young man who offered his fair one the pax or knelt by her side. According to the preacher Minot, prostitutes had the effrontery to come there in search of customers. Gerson tells that even in the church's unknown festival days, Obscene pictures were sold to Anquadam Idola Bahor, which corrupted the young, while sermons were ineffective to remedy this evil. As to pilgrimages, moralists and satirists are of one mind. People often go pour folle plaisance. The Chevalier de la Tour Landry naively classes them with the profane pleasures, and he entitles one of his chapters of those who are fond of going to jousts and on pilgrimages. On festival days, exclaims Nicolas de Clemage, people go to visit distant churches, not so much to redeem a pledge of pilgrimage as to give themselves up to pleasure. Pilgrimages are the occasions of all kinds of debauchery. Procuresses are always found there. People come for amorous purposes. It is a common incident in the Pain-Joie de Mariage. The young wife, who wants change, makes her husband believe that the baby is ill because she has not yet accomplished her vow of pilgrimage made during her confinement. The marriage of Charles VI with Isabella of Bavaria was preceded by a pilgrimage. It is far more surprising that the serious followers of the Devotio Moderna called the utility of pilgrimages in question. Those who often go on pilgrimages, says Thomas Akempis, 
rarely become saints. One of his friends, Frederick of Halo, wrote a special treatise, Contra Perigeriantis. The excesses and abuses resulting from an extreme familiarity with things holy, as well as the insolent mingling of pleasure with religion, are generally characteristic of periods of shaken faith and of deeply religious culture. The same people who in their daily life mechanically follow the routine of a rather degraded sort of worship will be capable of rising suddenly, at the ardent word of a preaching monk, to unparalleled heights of a religious emotion. Even the stupid sin of blasphemy has its roots in a profound faith. It is a sort of perverted act of faith, affirming the omnipresence of God and his intervention in the minutest concerns. Only the idea of really daring heaven gives blasphemy its sinful charm. As soon as the oath loses its character of an invocation of God, the habit of swearing changes its nature and becomes mere coarseness. At the end of the Middle Ages, blasphemy is sort of a daring diversion which belongs to the nobility. What, says the nobleman to the peasant in a treatise by Gerson, you give your soul to the devil, you deny God without being noble? Deschamps, on his part, notices that the habit of swearing tends to descend to people of low estate. Si je tif ni à qui ne dit, je renie Dieu et sa mère. Footnote. There is none so mean but says, I deny God and his mother. End of footnote. People make a pastime of coining new and ingenious oaths, says Gerson. He who excels in this impious art is honored as a master. Deschamps tells us that all France wore first after the Gascon and the English fashion, next after the Breton, and finally after the Burgundian. He composed two ballads in succession, made up of all the oaths that Ninvogue strung together, and ended with a pious phrase. The Burgundian oath was the worst of all. It was, Je renie Dieu, I deny God, which is softened down to, Je renie des bottes, boots. The Burgundians had the reputation of being abominable swearers. For the rest, says Gerson, the whole of France, for all her Christianity, suffers more than any other country from the effects of this horrible sin which causes pestilence, war, and famine. Even monks were guilty of mild swearing. Gerson and Daly expressly call upon the authorities to combat the evil by renewing the strict regulations everywhere, but imposing light penalties which may be really exacted. And a royal decree in 1397, in fact, re-established the old ones of 1269 and 1347, but unfortunately, also renewed the old penalties of lip-slitting and cutting out of tongues, which bore witness, it is true, to a holy horror of blasphemy, but which it was not possible to enforce. In the margin of the register containing the ordinance, someone has noted, at present, 1411, all these oaths are in general use throughout the kingdom without being punished. Gerson, with his long experience as a confessor, knew the psychological nature of the sin of blasphemy very well. On the one hand, he says, there are the habitual swearers, who, though culpable, are not perjurers, as it is not their intention to take an oath. On the other, we find young men of a pure and simple nature, who are irresistibly tempted to blaspheme and to deny God. Their case reminds us of John Bunyan's, whose disease took the form of a propensity to utter blasphemy and especially to renounce his share in the benefits of the redemption. Gerson counsels these young men to give themselves up less to the contemplation of God and the saints, as they lack the mental strength required. 
it is impossible to draw the line of demarcation between an ingenuous familiarity and conscious infidelity as early as the 15th century people liked to show themselves esprit fort and to deride piety in others the word papelard meaning a hypocrite was in frequent use with lay writers of the time de jeune anglo vieux diable a young saint makes an old devil said the proverb or in solemn latin metre angelicus juventus senibus sethansiat in annis it is by such sayings gerson explains that youth is perverted a brazen face scurrilous language and curses immodest looks and gestures are praised in children well what is to be expected in old age of a satanizing youth the people he says do not know how to steer a middle course between overt unbelief and the foolish credulity of which the clergy themselves set the example they give credence to all revelations and prophecies which are often but fancies of diseased people or lunatics and yet when a serious divine who has been honored by genuine revelations is occasionally mistaken he is called impostor and papillard and the people henceforth refuse to listen to any divine because all are considered hypocrites we not unfrequently find individual expressions of avowed unbelief beaux says captain betisac to his comrades when about to die i have attended to my spiritual concerns and in my conscience i believe i have greatly angered god having for a long time really eared against the faith and i cannot believe a word about the trinity nor that the son of god has humbled himself to such an extent as to come down from heaven into the carnal body of a woman and i believe and say that when we die there is no such thing as a soul i have held this opinion ever since i became self-conscious and i shall hold it to the end the provost of paris hugh aubriot is a violent hater of the clergy he does not believe in the sacrament of the altar he makes a mock of it he does not keep easter he does not go to confession jacques duclerc relates that several noblemen in full possession of their faculties refused extreme unction perhaps we should regard these isolated cases of unbelief less as willful heresy than as a spontaneous reaction against the incessant and pressing call of the faith arising from a culture overcharged with religious images and concepts in any case they should not be confounded either with the literary and superficial paganism of the renaissance nor with the prudent epicureanism of some aristocratic circles from the thirteenth century downward nor above all with the passionate negation of ignorant heretics who had passed the boundary line between mysticism and pantheism end of section fourteen